Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of wellbeing managers from organisations around the globe. At RO, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace wellbeing are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. In this session, we're joined by Hannah Hardy-Jones, CEO of Kite, to discuss serious mental illness and what workplaces can do to better support people through their journey. Hannah was leading a successful career in human resources before the traumatic birth of her first child led to what was later diagnosed as postpartum bipolar disorder. In this discussion, Hannah shares her lived experience with bipolar, plus the myths and misconceptions of the illness. She shares her tips and ideas for taking care as a person with a mental illness and tips for family, friends and colleagues. We also discuss the role that workplaces can play in supporting people with a serious mental illness. I'm honestly ashamed to say that my view of serious mental illness was that it was something that only affected a particular sector of society, whether that was people on the fringes, whether it was people who'd been through, um, you know, sort of traumatic events. It wasn't in my world anything that affected me or my friends or my family or anybody that I knew at work. So my perception was that it was it was almost something that, you know, I, I didn't have to think about from a personal or workplace um, perspective. Um, this was just over seven years ago and, and um, no, you know, it wasn't really spoken about in the workplace and, and not even depression and anxiety as much um, back then. You know, there was the, the sort of illnesses that we dealt with from an HR um, perspective was um, whether it was physical injury or maybe head injuries, but mental health was just, it was very much still brushed under the carpet at that time. Um, and I had studied psychology or majored in psychology. And so I felt like I understood a lot about mental health, even though, you know, it was very much from a book. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, I guess where my journey went there kind of shattered all of those those perceptions, really. And there was another perception, you know, we've talked about quite a bit about that idea of being a working parent. So, you know, you're just about to start off on your journey. You probably had some ideas around what it was going to be like to to have your baby, to return to work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was in Auckland at the time and, and Fisher and Paykel Healthcare at that point had no flexible working. So it was full time or um, leave the workplace essentially. So I had set it up that I was going to go back to work after four months. I had a, um, there was a childcare provider that we got into that was just across the road. So, you know, all of these things were in place in my mind that it was have the baby, have, you know, a nice few months at home and then go back to work. Um, you know, there was no, at no point in my mind was that things wouldn't go to plan or that I would struggle. Like it was just, that was the plan and we were going to stick to that plan. Um, we'd done our antenatal classes and had a few really small amounts talking about postnatal um, depression, for example. And my husband and I really sat there and thought, well, that's okay. That's not us. That won't affect Um you know, just completely oblivious to, to to that. So I was going to be the, you know, the the ultimate working mother, um, juggling my career and my my baby. 
and tell us about what happened. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, I guess it was a complete and utter um, change in, in path from what we thought. So, um, you know, had a really sort of a, a traumatic birth, which, you know, that, that didn't go to plan. But um, within sort of three to four days, um, instead of the sort of the downward spiral that that some um, mums go down with with baby blues and then and you know and, and potentially further into postnatal depression. As the days went on, um, I went the opposite. So I was becoming higher and higher and higher um, to the point that you know obviously I ended up being really critically unwell with that. But that that's those sort of steps in terms of um, going into a, a, a manic episode. Nobody around us had any idea what that looked like or why I was behaving the way that I was. Um, and I think because you're very much at that time, you know, the midwives and everyone are looking for the downward spiral, because I was going the other way, you know, there was definitely my husband and my family sort of looking at it thinking, well, at least she's not depressed. You know, I don't know what's wrong with her, but at least she's not going down that, 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 that other way. Um, so yeah, it was very, very quickly, um, established that I was in this sort of this, this manic, um, state, which actually lasted over six weeks, which is, which is pretty scary. Um, and was then told, look, you know, with a manic episode that is part of bipolar, you don't just have a, a manic episode and move on from that. So there was that diagnosis there. Um, and I was also told, you know, at that point that, you know, what comes goes up must come down. So you will be, um, you know, experiencing, unfortunately, in the in the near future, a depressive episode. And you need to, to be prepared that that's going to be very serious. Um, and when I was told that, you know, again, it, it clicked in my mind. Well, I won't I won't experience a depressive episode because that's not my personality. You know, I'm outgoing and you know and happy I'm not going to have go through that so I was still in that mindset that it was something to do with my personality um and within a few weeks it was you know it it was like night and day you know went to sleep one night and the next morning just the most crippling depression um which you know yeah was probably about three to four months of, of cyclical depression around that so you know again that really changed that perception that I had that it had anything to do with um my personality my strength or weakness it was very much a, a chemical um yeah situation with 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 me so yeah and tell us about how that manifests and uh, I know from reading your blog and hopefully you won't mind we could perhaps share oh, no, it with people fine. afterwards because no, no, it's, it's it's really great how you've I think detailed because that externally what, what mania say so can look like compared to what it's like to experience. Yeah, can you tell yeah. us a bit about that? The really difficult hard thing about a, a manic episode is that for the person going through it, um, you know, it's likened to being on drugs. It's actually a great feeling. You are completely invigorated, so much energy, so much excitement. You know, there's all these sort of, I guess, positive feelings on the inside alongside fear and you know and confusion but for people around somebody going through a manic episode it's anything but enjoyable you know it is scary um people are you know the the moods the change in personality the you know never sitting still the not sleeping so all of those things you know from the outside it's it's really really difficult um for me 
I just felt completely like it was, you know, I could achieve absolutely anything. Um, I it was never a risk to my baby, but I had no regard for her at all. It is all about you and and what you can be doing. So, you know, I would have very easily just gone, well, I'm going to go to the shop and I'm going to spend thousands of dollars because that's what I want to do and leave my baby at home. There's no, you're not um, ever kind of you know, purposefully neglecting your child, um, but your brain is just going a million miles miles an hour. Um, I talk quickly anyway, as you can probably see, but in a manic episode, it's probably five times that. So anybody that you come across would be sort of concerned about the behaviour. You know, it's not it's not a um, it's not a sort of a, a normal state. And how did your family, you know, what were those early signs they were responding to? When did they start to go, this doesn't look right? And what did the early support systems look like? Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't sleep probably for five days straight. And it was sort of, I guess, in secret at the start. I would sort of sneak out and go and start writing things down and looking on the iPad. So it wasn't, you know, for a few days, you know, my husband probably didn't really realise that between feeds, I just didn't sleep. Um, but then it became quite apparent, I guess, just in my, particularly around spending money, it's, it tends to be quite a, um, a kind of a, a, a symptom, uh, which is, you know, being quite reckless with money or reckless with your safety. Um, so mine was, you know, I went and bought 10 cardigans all at once from various different shops, you know, and um, I'm so proud of myself for how many I had bought and what they were on sale, you know, so those sorts of really big warning signs. Um, and so we got we got support really quickly um, once it was identified because I had a baby. And the sad thing is, is that if I had had a manic episode without having a baby, um, the support you get is is so much less because there's no, you know, you're only potentially risk yourself but when there's a baby involved. So that support came in so quickly and we had a, a nurse through the day and we had a nurse at night and I was treated at home and the psychiatrist and the team would come to my home um you know but but again if that had been um in, a, in another situation where I didn't have a baby then there's there's far fewer options um so we did have a lot of support um through that whole time um, but, you know, if I think about now, if I went through a, an episode, it would be really difficult to get that help unless you pay for that privately. So um, we were lucky that we had that at that time. Yeah. And then what does that support look like ongoing then? For me now? Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm in a situation now where um, I'm I'm really well managed. So since that, that first year of it being really, really turbulent, um, you know, I have been, you know, because I'm really strict with medication and sleep and warning signs and all of those sorts of things. So I don't need that ongoing support anymore. I don't have a therapist. I see my GP and, you know, that's from a medication perspective. So, you know, I guess it's the goal with anybody with, with a, a serious or any mental health illness that it's at a point where you don't need a lot of support and you've built a support network for yourself Echo. Mm, and tell us about that support network or, or some of the things that you have done along the way. You mentioned some of the things like sleep and, um, you know, staying connected, but, you know, what's really made a difference for you? 
A huge part of it is becoming really aware of um, triggers. So lack of sleep is is a really big trigger. Um, High stress, um, you know, if there was a a family situation that caused, you know, particular stress, all of those things are are the triggers. Um, Food is a a big thing. So I noticed for myself it's sugar. Um, But then it's about creating that toolkit. So for me, um, you know, I know that, um, you know, simple things like breathing, um, getting enough fresh air, um, you know, making sure I drink a lot of water. Those are really quite sort of easy things. Um, but I've built to the point now where um, all of those sorts, sorts of self-care or, um, you know, if I'm feeling particularly anxious, I know the tools to go to um, for that. And it might be switching my phone off for that evening. Um, it might be, you know, just just having no technology, no TV, just a, a way to kind of just wind down. So listening to an audio book or something like that. So, you know, there is, you know, I probably would say there's sort of 40 tools in my toolkit that I can go to at any one point, but it takes a long time to figure out those tools. And when you, and this doesn't matter whether you have a mental illness or not, when you're under stress, your tools sort of disappear you forget what they are and it's not until that you come out of it and you think oh I I wish I'd gone to that or I'd use that um so it's that's why the importance is is having it really front of mind what your toolkit is and I I was interested you know because you talk about this often with groups I know you've spoken a lot to um for mums groups to parent groups to organizations when you tell your story what are some of the feedback or what are some of the things that people say to you when you're you know really upfront about this because this is a conversation that people don't often have around mental illness like this you know I think we talk a lot about anxiety and depression but actually you know something like bipolar yeah um people are well firstly I guess people are really fascinated because there isn't a lot of information out there and um, I guess you don't often come up across somebody talking about a serious mental illness like bipolar or schizophrenia or, you know, even um, chronic OCD. Um, so there's there's those sorts of things where people are automatically really um, interested and, and thankful to, to hear that information. But I have so many people, you know, whether it's um, sharing my blog or whether it's talking or um, that that come forward to say either they've been through something like that or they've had a really close friend or family member, but being able to just hear it, um, I guess, in a conversational way. You know, you can read a lot of clinical information and, and things like that, but just being able to hear it from a very much a, this is this is normality for so many people, um, and when it's not hidden, it's easier just to bring out those conversations. So I do get a lot of people. Um, messaging just to say, you know, that they appreciated some hearing that or just learning about different aspects of it, really. Mm, that storytelling is such an important part of this, isn't it? Is that that normalising, you know? What, yeah. And we sort of talked earlier about some of the myths. So what have you found in, in sharing your story that, you know, what kind of myths and misconceptions do you find others have? About bipolar, yeah. So, I mean, and this is this would be absolutely mine as well. So my view was, and, and other people's, is that bipolar is a, a scary, dangerous illness. So, you know, um, I guess sort of merging it with, you know, even criminal-type activity that people are, um, are volatile, um, difficult to manage, um, 
you know, directing traffic on the streets naked, you know, really extreme sort of things, um, which make people feel really uncomfortable. So I guess that that's one of them. Um, there's a lot of, you know, not a lot. There's a few um, characters, TV, film um, type characters that have, that are, um, you know, portrayed as, as having bipolar. And, and I've always noticed that it is the extreme um, I don't know if any of you have seen Homeland, but Carrie on there, she's a CIA agent who has bipolar. And it is, you know, there is the, the huge extremes to it. And there never seems to be kind of the, here's somebody who's well managed. It's always, this is someone who, who isn't. Um, you know, I guess there's public sort of figures in terms of, you know, if you look at Kanye West, who quite openly says about his bipolar, but also how he won't take um, medication because it makes him feel dulled, et cetera. So that's a, a huge um, misconception, I think, around it is that people who have serious mental illness have to take medication and it, and it dulls them. Um, and my view of that is that, you can absolutely find medication that works, that makes you be able to live life exactly, you know, as, as you wish. Um, but it's about finding the right medication. And I think that's a really big part of it is that you do have to fight for your recovery and you have to fight to be well. And that includes, you know, finding the right people to help you. If you don't like a therapist, um, find a new one you know if the medication isn't working keep fighting and find some that that does so all of those things then can go into actually being you know having well-managed people who you know who traditionally would be really unwell mm. and I want to circle back to your family's experience through this because I imagine you know for them this also would have been a completely new experience and you talked about earlier you know you and your husband kind of had no idea I imagine you didn't know anyone who'd had this experience so what was it like for them I mean for my husband I mean he had to go back to work um after two weeks you know and and you imagine that again that's really typical for for most um fathers going back to work if they're, if they're the um if they're not the primary caregiver um and so he was having to go back to work and he he was you know embarrassed to say what was going on um so he was having to put on a front um get on with his really, really busy role. Um, you know, I think at a couple of points he said, oh, my, my, my wife's struggling a bit. But, you know, that <laughs> the reality was far, far more than just struggling. Um, so he found it really difficult. And honest to his experience, there was no support for him. So everything was focused on, on me and on my baby, our baby. Um, but he was just sort of always just on the outer, you know, and, and essentially like that's a hugely traumatic experience. And I think it's something that we have to remember is that for everyone who's going through any mental health struggles, the support people are hugely affected and forgotten about, you know, and they still have to go about their day and go back to work and all of those things. So um, it was really difficult. I mean, the whole the other side of it is it's really difficult to find information on bipolar. So if you start looking and going down the rabbit hole, it can be pretty scary. You know, there's some really awful, You all you can really find is the suicides, the relationships breaking up and the really, really, um, you know, awful, awful parts of it. Um, and at no point could my family find any stories of someone who'd come through the other side. Um, and that's a big part of why I talk so openly about it because 
you know, it's to show that you can come through it and that there's hope and that you can still go on and do, you know, all the amazing things that you've ever wanted to do and that it doesn't have to, to sort of hold you back. Yeah, and one of the things I think that's kind of remarkable from your story was, you know, not only have you got through and got through the other side, but you've also been involved in building Kite. And so tell us a little bit about what inspired Kite. So Kite came about, um, we, we launched Kite initially to mums, so the maternal mental health focus, which was obviously really, really close to my heart. Um, but it came about very much from the fact that it's really hard to find, and like we talked about with the toolkit, practical steps, practical ideas um, and ways of coming through a range of different challenges, you know, particularly around your mental health. Um, and so I learned over the particular of that first year, some really amazing ways for, you know, not just mindfulness or stress release, but coping with my relationship and coping with, you know, um, my own perception of myself and all of those things, confidence. So learning all those little bits and they were very, very bite-sized um, and that's what I found worked so well was that you take away the noise and if you only have one thing to focus on, even in that day, that you can just really think, is this working for me? Do I like this? tool and then the next focus so kite came about from that whole idea of just really bite-sized pieces presented in a really easy to manage way um, and it was never the intention wasn't for it to be an app um, necessarily it was actually uh, wrote the program to kind of be face-to-face -face or um, on the phone and eventually got to the point that an app was if I could design it in a way that it was like a, a note arriving to you rather than a piece of technology, um, that we could help, you know, thousands of, of mothers with it rather than just a small group, which is all I would have been able to do um, from a face-to-face -face perspective. So that's how that, that journey came to, to becoming um, an app, really. Um, and then, obviously, after the mum market um, and that was really successful was that it was the same concept could be applied within the workplace um, or with other groups. Mm. And I, I, re I just really pick up on that, what you, comment you were just saying about little bite-sized pieces every day and how much that can apply to people, I guess, with serious mental illness, but also people every day. And it's such a great message in terms of thinking about our own wellbeing that we don't, it is so noisy. We talk about this a lot. There is so much overwhelm. I don't know how many of you find you log on to LinkedIn and you could scroll for miles on all the tips on wellbeing, you know. So actually being able to pick out those small pieces. Um, yeah. But that has been critical for your self-care in general. Massively. And it's about being validated. So the way Kite works is that, you know, the content is so specific to that that person and what they're going through that it doesn't become just lost in the the mass of LinkedIn and, and you know, Instagram and everything. Um, and it's even around, you know, you think about if you have a conversation with someone and they're giving you their ideas or how they cope with something, in two hours' time you go back and invariably you can't remember what it was that they said. You know that they said something really, you know, profound, but you can't implement it in your life. And I, and that's the part of it is that, you know, you can take all that noise out of it and, and have it within, um, you know, a, a, a platform or an app like Kite um, that you can just 
just focus on that. And it might be that you go and climb a hill or you might go for a walk down to the, you know, shop, but you've got somewhere that's away from all the noise um, that you can consistently be be working on. And, and I think we're very good at um, currently of the sort of the intense, you know, we'll do a workshop and then in three months we'll do another workshop. But when you actually look at knowledge retention and, and people actually implementing it, it's so low. Um, whereas if you can just make it a, a little habit each day, then it's, it's a lot easier. Mm. And if I can take that tangent now and we turn to look at, at workplaces generally and, and, you know, you said a lot has changed since you know, your days of um, Fisher and Paykel and, you know, we've, we've come a long way in terms of mental health, but where are we at? Uh, are we as far through as we think? I think that we're getting really fantastic at talking about anxiety, anxiety and depression. I think that that's becoming a much more of a norm, even just using those words. I think, you know, even seven years ago, it was stress was kind of more the word that was used. So from an awareness perspective for, for those two um, conditions, I think we're really um, coming a long way. Um, but I still believe that that's around the, potentially reducing the stigma, but there's a huge way to go in terms of actually providing solutions to people, real, you know, real life solutions that they can implement in their work and in their home. Um, I think a lot of workplaces also um, do focus on potentially work stress, um, but not as much on home and what's going on at home. Because if you think about the, the types of pressures with kids, with relationships, with sleeping, with technology all of those things massively impact work um but they you know they're not they're not generally discussed as much within within a workplace I think we've got a huge way to go in terms of actually making normalizing all mental illness and I think that's a big big part um it's still very much taboo in terms of talking about you know when's the last time you know, anybody's heard a workplace talking about schizophrenia, for example, like it just, it just doesn't happen, you know. So there's, there's still that big, big gap. Um, but, you know, I always sort of feel, you know, people just want practical tools and you can talk about it, but, you know, till the cows come home. But when it comes to what am I going to do if I'm feeling this way or if I'm struggling with something, what, what's something practical I can implement in your life. I think we've got a long way to go with that. Mm. And for support people too, it sounds like an even oh. further further way to go. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, I'm personally really passionate about providing, um, you know, women in the workplace in terms of going on maternity leave, et cetera. But even almost even more so is the the fathers. And this isn't just first time fathers. This is, you know, dads who've got two, three, four kids, you know, and, and each time, you know, there's a huge risk period where their partner potentially could be really struggling, but also they could be really struggling because they're not getting enough sleep or, you know, not eating enough or not, you know, and so all of those things, I think, again, that's where that home and work part comes in, where I think, you, we can do a huge amount more to support those people in the workplace by really thinking about what's going on for them at home. And what might some of those sort of broader organisational strategies be or, or other things we could do broadly to support people? Yeah. So 
leadership is is a huge part and you know I talk a lot about vulnerability and there's a lot of talk about vulnerability but you know simple things around if as a leader you are struggling um, with anything whether it's sleep whether it's stress or whether it's time management being open with others about that um, and just saying you know this is what I'm going through and I've tried this or has anyone else got any other ideas it's about creating making humanizing it because I think you know there are a lot of leaders who feel they need to put on a front they need to you know it's like if you're going to battle in war you know as a leader you you don't show your your weakness you've got to keep going and 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 show your team that you can do it you know and and bringing in those normalizing conversations is just so so important because it changes that culture and, and creates space for people to go oh you know, oh, he's not just got it all together or she's not just managing to juggle, you know, kids and, and work. You know, there is that that normalising. Um, the other part is I think is is providing or finding ways to, to share lived experience, you know, whether that's getting somebody in to talk about lived experience because it's such, like we said, the storytelling is such a great way for people to feel connected. And, you know, you, you, Mike King's an example. There's a lot of workplaces where he's gone into where people, particularly men, have felt really connected to what he's saying and have sought help as a result or have talked more openly as a, as a result. Um, so, you know, maybe, you know, I always have the view that, you know, you have your, your training budget. Maybe some of that needs to come out and go some of those soft skills that, um, you know, you could, you could be teaching in a, in a classroom setting, maybe put that on hold and, you know, bring in some, some mental health, um, speakers or, um, have some workshops around that because that, again, just creates some of that, that conversation, which is so key. And then following it up with some extra support to kind of give that wraparound as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think that the homework part, you know, it should become really key to, to wellbeing strategies, you know, the looking at the whole person and not just who that person is from 8.30 to 4 or what they're going through, you know, what are the, the stress hazards in that period? It's 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 the wraparound for all of it, you know, and, and things like EAP are really important, but I think organisations are starting to come to the conclusion that the uptake isn't really high with those with some of those services because people aren't comfortable. You know, if you can bring it to them rather than them having to go to that person, that is that's awesome. You know, that should be the goal. And and there's been a bigger uptake with mental health first aid as well. And how do you see that supporting people with serious mental illness? I think it's I think it is really key. And I think um you know, I suppose with a lot of that, it's it's often the same people putting their hands up to do those those sorts of things. So you're still only getting, you know, a, a, a small part of it. But I think that that's it's still a really even just the words mental health first aid. I think it's a really it's great. You know, it makes people feel that that's actually it, it is it's first aid. You know, you 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 break your arm or you you really struggle mentally. There should be no difference. So. You know, I'm a really, um, you know, big believer that that's a that's a, a positive thing, um, but there's just, I guess, there's there's so many parts to it, aren't there? So that's just it's just one yeah. one aspect. And so, as you know, 
if you, if you had a friend who was actually I, funny now that I think about this, you know, I did have someone recently contact me. They have a friend who is um, struggling with an eating disorder. You know, they they are adults, so it's different. You know, normally with an eating disorder, we you know think of young people, but as an adult, you know, how do you support a friend who's going through something as serious as that? What what role do you play? How how do you you know, what kind of suggestions might you have? So one of the biggest things, and this actually applies to when people have just had a baby as well, you know, is that whole when people say, what can I do? What can I do? Um, you know, how, how can I help you? And, uh, and putting it onto that person of how can I, how can, you know, it's, I think when you're really under um, a lot of pressure mentally, even trying to think of what you need to be able to tell that person is so hard. So, you know, the first things being, firstly, I'm here, whatever you need, whenever you need it, you know, and just keep reinforcing that. I'm here. There's no pressure with that. Um, Then secondly, maybe identifying some things that might help and just do it, you know. So whether it's just, you know, dropping something around, um, you know, putting the washing out, but just doing that kind of unannounced, I think that that's a really, really important thing. Um, but also saying, are you okay or how are you can be really hard for someone who's struggling. And I know for me, when people used to say, you know, how are you, you just couldn't think of the words to even describe. It was almost like insurmountable to get to the point of trying to explain, especially when you feel absolutely awful and you find that what happens is people just go, I'm okay, you know. So it's finding other ways, you know, and it might be, using a number scale or or finding a way that works for them, you know. So you can just say, what's your number today? And you can go seven and they automatically know in a scale of what that is. So that can be that can be really helpful too. Um, but it's just being there and not not judging and remembering that when someone is struggling, they're probably going to be feeling um, you know, like a burden. Um, and they will focus on, you know, oh my gosh, what if they're going to, you know, not want to be friends with me anymore because I'm going through this. So just being that kind of constant, um, you know, even if it's just a daily message just to say I'm here or I just want you to know you're awesome and you just keep that going. And I think that's that's perfect. Um, and obviously if they're really struggling, it's just ensuring that you can get them some medical help, you know, and, and guide them to getting some sort of help if, if you're really worried about them. And I imagine those rules, were, well, rules, thoughts, ideas would be the same for workplaces. You know, how, what are the best things that workplaces can do to support someone who who is going through that really challenging time? Oh, I mean, again, it's it's that it's that judgment part. You know, it's just being able to say like, this is okay. It's okay that that you feel like this. You know, like we these are the things that we will do to support you and making sure that that sort of. Um, I guess just that they know what mechanisms are in place. Like if they do need to take some time off because they're really struggling, what might that look like? How might that be made up, you know, with their leave or or, or kind of almost um, how can they sort of um, build that back up again, you know, whether that's doing extra hours down the track. But I think the other thing is, and coming from HR, is it's always put on HR to be the ones often having that conversation. We were, I've been in many positions where, it almost gets to a point and then you say HR will deal with it and it's kind of putting it back on those managers to be like you are you're the people that dealing with them every day and for them to you know yeah I guess again it comes down to that not knowing how to act 
you know, like, so I don't want to make this person worse or I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, so I think, you know, really um, giving managers tools just to be like, this is how you talk about it. How would you talk about it if someone's got a head, head injury or a broken arm? You know, like there's a, this is a similar way, you know, this is just an illness um, and, and, then, and then going from there. Because mm. I was reflecting, I guess it's like having you know, your manager, as you say, as a person you deal with every day. It's a hopefully a trusting relationship, and and so to know that person is there for you rather than you being passed off to HR, that that must feel like a different experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think too, like it really depends because you know, in situations where somebody has got quite a serious mental illness, um, most people still don't feel safe to talk about it. Um, so then that's far beyond. M- the manager and, and it's like it's a cultural sort of thing um in that regard but yeah I mean it you know managers fronting up and, and being being that person I mean it depends obviously you know that the type it does depend on the type of relationship or if it's remote working that's a bit bit harder um but just knowing you know that it's that there, there isn't the judgment there you know it's just we support you um and you'll get through this and we look forward to helping you get to that point and for you to be feeling, you know, better. So fantastic. Awesome. Thank thank you, Hannah. I would like to open the floor now and um if there are any questions for Hannah about her experience. Anyone want to jump in? Yeah, Hannah, um you've spoken really well about that holistic whole person approach and how you, that can help in normalising various conditions and ailments and illnesses people might have. Um, I'm wondering, I, I sort of get a sense that there's often organisations bring in uh, initiatives or procedures um, that might be quite fixed or um, something like, a, you know, paper interleaving and so on, which are, which are really great, but perhaps they're not as broad as they might be. And I wonder what your view might be on what organisations or workplaces could do in terms of more all-encompassing approaches to uh, to help people in all sorts of situations yeah I think I think getting feedback from the the people is really important like what what is it that people are going through what are they what are they struggling with because I think sometimes in an organization and from a management perspective or HR perspective we make these assumptions about what people need and what's important to them and um, and so on so I think that that's a, a really important part of the the holistic um, sort of side. Um, and, you know, I also, you know, I know from being in that role, there's so much, um, you spend so long writing policies, mm. you know, like it's just, it's just, it's just such a huge undertaking. And often, you know, there's a whole heap of that time that could just go into, let's just, that's, that's enough now. That's good. Let's put it into actually coming up with some really, really unique, cool ways of supporting people. Um, so I think there's, you know, it's that move from getting stuck in the the nitty gritty of a policy and going into, you know, let's really think about helping people. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the holistic side, I really think like the organisation themselves, the actual people um, are so key to that. Awesome. Thank you. And we've got one from Molly here. So Molly, I'm just going to read it out. Um, I noticed managers are hesitant to bring in people's whole self in the workplace. They feel there is a line to draw in their responsibility. What's your thoughts on that one? 
I think it's probably easy for me to say because I am so open about my mental health. So I'm very aware that there are people that are, are, are private. Um, but I think in that situation, it's just even about bringing in just a bit of yourself. You know, if you find it, if, if, if managers are finding it hard to, to show that whole self, even just going, okay, well, I'm just going to share, um, you know, some of my experiences or someone I know's experience just to be able to show that there's, there's that human element. Um, but, you know, my, my view is that we should all, as much as possible, um, be as authentic as possible. Um, and if, if you're hiding a lot of that because you want to have this professional front, then that's, that's potentially not being authentic. Mm. That's a really good question. It's one that often comes up with, you know, managers thinking how, how far should they reach in terms of their care for people? You know, where, where does that care start and stop? You know, have yeah. you found that in some of your experience? Yeah, I think I, I think a lot of people. There's such a wide range of personalities, aren't there? Um, but any manager, um, well, my view is that you know you, you have a responsibility um, to your staff to be you know open and honest with them um, and to do the best for them. And nine times out of ten, doing the best for them is to show some part of yourself and to show how you've learned, you know, you, you've got and a lot of managers, you know, they've got to a position in their career. They've learned a huge amount to get to that point, good, bad, you know, and ugly. And that sharing that journey and being able to say, well, I used to not know how to do that. Or I used to struggle with, you know, deadlines and this is what I've done. And I think, you know, there's still a lot of managers that get to the, that point of that position and then go, well, I've made it now. And then, my job is, you know, not to show that that side of me. So, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And the other questions? Oh, now there's another oh. good question from Molly, but if someone else wants to jump in. Oh, it wasn't so much a question, more a comment about you, what you're saying about all the tools you have and how uh, I've found for myself that you sort of know about the tools and you and you can feel your body or your mind sort of telling you about them but then you know your phone or the television or whatever allows you to find a distraction it's quite it's quite interesting to to sort of feel the way your body's working with those tools and thinking oh yeah i know i need to do that get some sleep go for a walk whatever but then you just sit and watch tv for another half an hour <laughs> yeah yeah oh absolutely and it's an escapism you know so often if we're feeling quite anxious or you know um struggling a bit that you have a choice of doing something good for yourself or escaping from that feeling. And that's what, you know, that's why we, you know, you see the social dilemma even, you know, like people, you know, scrolling through and through. It's kind of you, you're escaping from that current current state. And so when I talked about, um, you know, that fighting, it really is like, and this isn't just someone, you know, people with serious mental health issues. It's It's you've got to fight and you've got to fight against the, you know, the watching TV part, you know, even that, you know, because it is a battle. Um, and that's, that in itself is really difficult, yeah. I think one of the things, um, a really good point, Tony, and one of the things I think you and I, Hannah, found when we were building kite support over those early days of lockdown and, you know, probably for both of us, you know, we were not in a lot of sleep, trying to get things out the door. And I think there was one point where, you know, you said to me, you just need to go to bed. And I think so having that other voice sometimes when you can't see it yourself <laughs> and having someone else who can be the voice of reason um, can be helpful too. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and teams, I mean, you know, when we um, roll out kite with clients, um, a lot of the time it actually works really well doing it in teams or with a buddy because it is that, you know, it's like going, even if it's a, a sleep one, but you actually encourage each other and go, hey, did you need to, you know, was that a good idea? Or I think that's, yeah, like Sarah says, it's really, um, it's really good to have that, that other voice. Especially when you can't see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm going to pick up Molly's um, other question because I thought it was a really good one. So um, she's saying, I have had an employee let me know they have been diagnosed with bipolar as a side comment. I thank them for entrusting me with this and offered my full support for anything they need in the work environment. They said they didn't need anything but thought I should know. I don't want to probe too much or bring it up a lot to make it feel like it's an issue, but how would you approach this? I think the best way to approach it is to think about um, if someone says, um, you know, um, I don't know, they find a a lump somewhere or, um, you know, I've got an an injury to my leg. So they say, you know, I've I've got this. Um, I wanted you to know. And I think really that, the, um, you know, when you tell someone something like that, it's just just so you know, in case I need you. So I wouldn't worry too much about, you know, not, you know, feeling like you you don't want to probe is you just say, okay, well, I'm here. If you need anything ever, great, but you might never need to talk to me about this ever again because you might not be feeling, you know, awful. So I think that that's probably the way I would look at it is just to think about it the same way that you would if someone had told you something physical and would you be checking in and saying, how's your lump or, you know, you you, you might not. So I think it's great that they they shared it with you and, and that you're obviously there um, when they need, if they need. Fantastic. Awesome. And any other questions for Hannah? Right, there have been some really good ones. Um, just picking up on, on something else we, we talked about, Hannah, earlier. You know, I think being able to access, you know, services is obviously one of the big one. And we often talk about in, in workplaces, you know, there, there's often not a lot of at the top of the cliff, you know, it's often like EAP at the bottom of the cliff. Are there other things we could be doing, you know, in that preventative space, you know, to give people better support, particularly around, you know, a really specifically kind of that serious mental illness piece, you know, because we talk a lot, there's a lot of very, we've been talking about this actually, um, you know, with mental health often we can either be in the very fluffy part of it so so really talking about kind of you know broadly what mental health is and some sort of ideas um, but it's kind of that that halfway along the journey what does that look like yeah I mean I, I feel like with the the ambulance at the top of the cliff or, or stopping that um the education part comes in hugely so you know the more that we can teach people about this the more people you know and like you can like if you um, liken this to um, climate change you know like people don't actually often know what they should be doing in their life to make a difference environmentally you know and and so often it's exactly the same with mental health Um, and even people who are at risk of developing serious mental illness don't have those tools Um, and even some people who are in the system for serious mental illness they still don't have the tools and they still don't have the support so you know education is a massive part in just creating that that community Um, and finding a way to get you know that comes with the education is get the tools to people like make sure it's second nature for people that when they're in a situation um whatever it might be that they know what to do you know if they're having conflict with a colleague instead of having to go to HR they know what's in their toolkit and what's worked before um, you know and and just building on that um, 
and the more tools people have, you know, the less we'll need to do the, the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the revolutionaries of wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.